Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is August 16th, 2016, and I am your host, William Hill. And today is our uh, August edition of Faith and Practice. It is the uh, normal monthly uh, edition uh, where the president of Greenville Seminary comes uh, on the air and he answers questions from you, the listener, and this uh, this month is no exception. We have uh, an outstanding list of questions uh, for Dr. Piper to deal with uh, on the program. In addition to that, if you do write in uh, and submit a question that is actually used on the program, uh, you will receive a $10 discount coupon to the Banner of Truth uh, online store. So it's a win-win for uh, the listeners. Uh, you get good theological answers, solid uh, answers from a man who's been uh, doing theology most of his life, and you also get a free book, as it were, in the process. So uh, submit your questions uh, at the website, confessingourhope.com. In addition to the um, Faith and Practice signature program that we do each month, I do want to alert our listeners to the uh, GPTS mobile app. Uh, I know uh, that I had mentioned that we were discontinuing it, but the administration uh, it has decided to go ahead with it uh, each month, but in, in reference to that, I would appeal to the listeners to uh, find ways, if you have benefited from the podcast, to help us with this particular aspect of Confessing Our Hope. It is $99 a month, and if 20 listeners uh, throw $5 at the seminary, uh, we'll pay for that app every single month, and it will help us uh, continue this uh, mobile feature of Greenville Seminary. So uh, consider that as you consider the seminary, and do pray for us as well as the new semester is beginning. Well, Dr. Piper, it's great to have you back on the program um, to do this. We're doing it a little bit differently this uh, this month. As uh, most of our listeners know, I have left Greenville, and I'm living in North Carolina, so we are doing this remotely uh, over Skype, and so it's great to have you back on. Thank you, Bill. It is uh, always great to be doing the program, and it's good to keep in touch with you, at least in this way. Absolutely. Well, let's get right to the questions. Um, open with we, prayer. You open absolutely. with prayer, please. You will. I will. Thank you. Uh, Father, we do uh, give you thanks for uh, the ability to, to do this program um, in this method, um, in this way. We know that this technology has been ordered by you, and you have allowed uh, us to understand it, to uh, use it, and utilize it, and we would ask that we would do this to your glory. We ask that this program would benefit your people as they hear and listen to the questions and the answers given, that they would edify and encourage and they would honor you. Uh, be with Dr. Piper, especially as he answers these questions, that it would be done so in, with wisdom and much grace and insight uh, as he helps those that listen to this program. We do thank you for the seminary. We do pray for her ask that you would richly bless uh, that institution, especially as the fall semester is beginning, the students, the faculty, the staff, keep them all safe and honor their labors uh, to the glory of your kingdom, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just uh, tack on to your thing about what it costs to have the mobile app. We've also uh, extended our budget to uh, for this podcast. Bill's no longer on the seminary staff, and so it's about, what, $300 a month, something like that. So, again, if you enjoy the podcast and you're not a regular donor of Greenville Seminary, we're doing a, a major push right now. We don't usually do one this time of year, but we had some budget corrections that we need to get made, and God's been blessing that in a wonderful way. But that would be a way that you could simply send your money in for the podcast, 
and uh, keep this ministry going. Absolutely. Very good. And um, if you want to donate to the seminary, uh, it's very simple. You can go to the website, gpts.edu, and click the support link at the top of the page, and then donate, and you can do it right through PayPal. PayPal account not required. Uh, You can use your credit card or send a check uh, to the seminary as well. So there's many different ways to do that, and we would encourage that. But do pray for us as well. As uh, as again, as the fall semester begins and uh, everything ramps back up, so let's let's jump in, Doctor Piper. We'll just take these in order, I assume. Yes, sir. Got some great questions okay. this month. Absolutely. Well, the first question comes in from Jeff. He he wrote in through email and he asks a, a question regarding uh, the unforgivable sin. And he asks, can the unforgivable sin be forgiven via grace, or is unforgivable sin too serious for even grace? Or is there a series of steps which need manifest in the believer when in concert with grace can transform or cleanse out one of the unforgivable sins? So I think you're going to have to correct probably, Dr. Pipe, a few things there, but um, please answer that well, Jeff, one. Jeff, uh, thank you. Um, it's a very uh, sensitive question. Let's read Christ's remarks in uh, Matthew chapter 12. This is after the Pharisees accused him of casting the devil out by devils. He who is not with me, this is verse 30, is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it should be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. I'll come back to that last statement, but quickly, the unpardonable sin as it's defined here, is not unbelief, it's not even blaspheming Christ or rejecting him. It's the person who is, has been illuminated by the Holy Spirit to the degree that he sees the beauty and power of Christ and holds Christ up to open contempt. Now, that's the way the writer of the Hebrews describes it in Hebrews chapter 6. So there is such a sin. This is a person who, uh, we would say, is in the church, has, as it says in Hebrews 6, tasted the good word of God, experienced something of the power of, of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then turns and doesn't just fall away morally. People like that can be brought back, but holds Christ up to open contempt and shame as a fraud, as one who deserved what he received. That's in a nutshell, the unpardonable sin, as I understand it. Now, in verse 32, Christ says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. He's not saying here there's any kind of a probationary period uh, in hell. He's simply emphasizing the fact that this sin is, in fact, unpardonable. And so, no, there's no way through grace because the person's hardened his heart against God's grace. There's no steps. There's, there's never steps to go through, Jeff, in terms of coming to God. It's throwing up our hands in absolute helplessness and casting ourselves on Christ. Mm. The person who's committing unpardonable sin does not want to do that, and God's not going to give them. If God doesn't give repentance, nobody repents anyway. Right. Say, so, well, is there a person who wants to repent and is committing unpardonable sin. No. And if there's any listener today that knows someone or himself is wrestling with this question, if you desire 
to be accepted by God and to be pardoned, that's a very good indication you've not committed the unpardonable sin. So you flee to Christ. And Christ never says no to anyone who flees to him. The person that commits the unpardonable sin is not going to want to flee to Christ. Well, that's a great question. And just to follow up, Dr. Piper, I was having a conversation recently with, with somebody about this issue, and, and, and the issue came up, uh, what, what if you think you've committed the unpardonable sin? How, how would you respond to that? Well, it's what I've just said. Yeah. That if you really want to be forgiven, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. If you're concerned about being right with God, you've not committed the unpardonable sin. The person that's committed the unpardonable sin is dead, and they might know they're under damnation, but they have no desire to come to God on his terms. Because God gives repentance, and God will not give repentance to the person who's committed this sin. Great. Well, it's a great question, um, and I appreciate you listening and, and writing in. I think this was a first-time uh, write-in, uh, but thank you for listening to the program and for submitting the question. Our next question uh, comes up uh, from Anonymous, and, um, and which is fine. If you want to write in and don't want your name used, that's okay. Just indicate that in your question. But the question centers around the issue of the vitals of religion, and oftentimes when a candidate, here's the question, when a candidate for ordination takes an exception to the standards, that is the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechism, the exception is evaluated as to whether it strikes at the vitals of religion. Can you explain what that means and offer some examples? All right, thank you, Mr. N- or Ms. Anonymous. Yeah, um, a little history here. Uh, in and, and perhaps instruction for those who are not in a confessional denomination. In confessional denominations like the Presbyterian Church in America, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, or Association of Reformed Baptist Churches of America, we have uh, confessional standards. In the Presbyterian Church, the confessional standards are the Westminster Confession of Faith, the large majority catechisms. And office bearers, ministers, elders, and deacons, take a vow when they're ordained. Historically, the vow was that I believe that the Westminster Standards contain the system of truth. Now, that vow says that everything in it, in terms of every doctrine expressed in it, is a true expression of Scripture. That has been called historically strict subscription, we prefer to refer to it as full subscription. Then, as, in, as Presbyterian history developed, particularly here first in uh, America, a looser approach was taken to uh, subscription. And uh, this uh, looser approach eventually became called, in our day, system subscription. Now, that's a misunderstanding of... Uh, believe that the Westminster Standards contain the system of religion. No, it says that the system of religion, as I define it, that's in the Westminster Standards, I hold to. That subscription is simply opening way too wide uh, the door of the church uh, for uh, office bearers to come in who have uh, error. In my own denomination, Presbyterian Church in America a few years ago, we then uh, lowered our subscription vows to this very um, loose, subjective standard, made worse by the fact, in my opinion, that each presbytery, that's the regional 
church, the ruling body of the churches, and it's the press trade that examines the ministers, and each church examines its ruling elders, to go to this system of subscription. And the press trade then makes the decision, uh, does this exception to the standard strike the true vitals of religion? So uh, that word historically simply meant, is this um, statement in the Confession of Faith uh, necessary for a coherent and consistent Reformed Christianity. Now, I, what you'll have then are people that will say uh, recreational position on the Sabbath, the regular principle of worship, uh, creation, any number of things there that, that uh, people today will say, well, this is not part of the system. And so my exception does not strike the vitals, the cohesion of Reformed Christianity. I reject that. I realize that my denomination now, and we're seeing chaos um, because of this. I just heard uh, last night a story of one of our Reformed seminaries, Westminster, California, and uh, Greenville, the two Presbyterian seminaries, kind of the uh, larger ones that will not let women into the MDiv program. The others do, and I heard of a seminary that had a woman in a preaching class, and she said in that class, her goal was to be the first woman minister in the Presbyterian Church in America. Mm. And that's where we're headed, because this subjectivism, this relativism where each Presbytery uh, is able to um, determine whether a, an exception is against the vitals or not is so subjective. So at the last General Assembly, we allowed uh, uh, exceptions that historically we've never allowed on Pado communion and on, I think, on the Sabbath. So the system's going to ruin us. This is the kind of thinking that's behind, again, in my opinion, the, the Presbyterian Church of America appointing a committee um, to study uh, the role of women in the church and uh, the ratio to ordination. It's just it's going to be one error after another. So I answered a lot more than you asked, Mr. Anonymous. I thoroughly despise system subscription. It will destroy, and historically it's been proven, it'll destroy any confessional denomination that adopts it. And so we need to pray that God will spare us the consequences of their own actions and uh, bring us back in a church that's going to take faith to the standards. Thanks for giving me a bully pulpit. Yeah, no, it's um, it's an important subject. I, I, as, a, as, a, as a pastor in the church and going to Presbytery and other pastors who listen to this program uh, run into this all the time. And I guess a follow-up, question for you, Dr. Piper, would be, other than prayer, obviously, we should be praying for our denomination on a regular basis, but other than that, how can we who are turned off by this system subscription idea, what can we do um, within the uh, courts of our church to turn that tide back where it ought to be? Yeah, I don't think we can turn the tide back attacking it at that level. I think we have to, right, as we're praying, much more earnestly than we do, or than I do anyway, uh, we write and teach on the doctrines that people are trying to throw out the door. Mm-hmm. And if God would bless that, and we get a commitment again to all of the doctrines, see, the, the confession 
each chapter has a series of doctrines. Now, we don't require a man to believe in every exegetical uh, expression of that doctrine. And so we would allow, in, in, in uh, full subscription, scruples. For example, I have a very good friend who's written on full subscription, Dr. Knight. Dr. Knight thinks that exegetically, the doxology is not in the end of Matthew and the Lord's Prayer. The words are biblical, but elsewhere in Scripture. He doesn't believe they're part of the Lord's Prayer, which he's following um, the text that most of the ESV, the New York Standard, and whatever go by. And so he will take a scruple that when, when the confession or the catechism interprets the uh, Lord's Prayer, he would say, I don't think that's part of it. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. Or if, in fact, the confession under the regular principle of worship requires exclusive psalmody, mm-hmm. then I would scruple that. I believe the Bible requires me to sing hymns. But it's a it's a, a minor exegetical difference. Those things we allow for in the full subscription. But the doctrine of the regular principle of worship must stand that we may only do in worship that which God reveals to us in his word explicitly or by good and necessary consequence. A little different in the application of that in a few areas. That's fine. We'll keep studying and, and praying together. Absolutely. Well, great question. Thank you for writing in. Um, our next question comes from Pete. It's, um, I believe he's a longtime listener. He's writing in from the great state of Washington, and he wants to know from you, Dr. Pfeiffer, uh, uh, helps in, in preaching. So he writes, I've been preaching now on a regular basis for nearly 15 years, and I'm continually trying to find ways to improve as a preacher. Do you have any suggestions, books, classes, practices, other Thank you, Pete. This is an issue that is close to my own heart. I think that all of us who are called to preach must constantly uh, be studying preaching and how we can be better uh, preaching. I was just, we had some dear friends with us this weekend. That would be uh, middle of August for those who hear this uh, recording. And we served together in the session for two and a half years. Well, he wasn't elder the whole time, but in, in Houston and we're just good friends. And after we were in California, I overheard a conversation between my wife and his wife. And obviously, uh, I could tell from my wife's end, they were talking about my preaching. Uh, now, that lady happens to be uh, overly uh, a fan. <laughs> so, but <laughs> anyway, um, I could tell from what she said to my wife, it was something about my preaching. My wife said, yes, but he is better. It was five years after I'd left that church. I said, I can't think of any higher compliment. It's nice to be told that you're a profitable preacher. But for me, it's mm. much better to be told, yes, but he's better. And, was, we were ta- and I said, and if you asked her today, which would be um, 20 years later, she would say, yes, he's better. I hope five years from now. She'll say the same thing. When she quits saying that, it's time for me to stop preaching. So I appreciate your attitude, Jeff. This is a real problem today in the pulpit. I think that as men get into that 15 to 20-year slot, they put their ministry on cruise control. Mm. So good. Good for you. Now, uh, occasionally listen to yourself critically. Uh, That's a very useful uh, thing 
to do. Uh, listen to preachers on sermon audio, good reformed preachers, just to see uh, things that they do. Uh, particularly, listen to them critically. I think mean, really expounding the text and really applying uh, the word. Uh, read maybe once a year a, a book on preaching. Read read the classics. Read Dabney, Pierre Marcel, an older edition of Abratus, uh, and then the newer books uh, that there are just a plethora of them that are available. And then uh, I'm going to be encouraging ministers to come in January uh, as kind of a refresher course and take our introduction to homiletics. One thing is is that it's it's an approach to preaching that is much more thorough, scientific, and useful, I think, than uh, what many received in seminary. Mm-hmm. And the professor is doing an excellent job. The, even before the student evaluations were done, I was getting emails from students how much they profited from the class. So that's going to be... You know, the first or second week in January. We'll soon have word out on that. We're going to open that Dr. up. Dr. Pipe, I don't want to interrupt you, but is that going to be, you mentioned you're going to encourage pastors, so even guys that haven't are been doing it for a while, they can come and... That's what I'm saying. This is answering this question. Here's a resource. Here's a class. Standing. Uh, to come and to take a refresher course. And we'll give a continuing education credit, uh, a three credit for that course. In the summer... First week of August, we do the minister or the uh, summer institute. Three fourths of those are devoted to preaching. Uh, two years ago, we had the Psalms and preaching the Psalms. This year, we had an excellent course that included preaching uh, that Chad Van Dixhorn did on the Westminster um, Divines and Pastoral Ministry. Uh, next year, we're going to do something on preaching. A couple times, I've done a course that's been very popular where we actually listen to and evaluate uh, preaching. Sometimes we've done through the history of preaching. Sometimes we've just done modern preaching. I talk to the men, and that's what everybody seemed to want to do this next year. So that's another good way. So that's two things that we're doing at the seminary. The January intensive, that's one week, um, Pete, and we'd be glad to find you a place to stay that week if you can get, come out here. Or the uh, Summer Institute first week of August, and then men that are really struggling, periodically I'll do a contract with uh, a man in his session, six-month contract to um, uh, help, them, help them work on aspects of, of their preaching as well. So uh, there's some suggestions for you, but God bless you if you just want to improve, uh, pray, study. Oh, I didn't mention, did I mention Pierre Marcel, Relevance of Preaching? That's a book that every preacher should uh, read and reread. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Pete, for the question, um, and it's very relevant um, today, especially. The next question comes in um, from Todd. He writes in from um, from the from Iowa, and he wants to know from you, Doctor Piper, the issue and how to address statements of God's leading. And he and he asks, what do you think is the best way, personally, in conversation with a Christian friend, to address the statement? quote, God told me to do X, unquote. This type of statement is so pervasive in evangelical 
culture, and to question it in any way is often seen as rude and inappropriate and, and inappropriate attack. How would you respond to a Christian fr- friend who says this? In particular, scriptural references would be helpful. Okay, Todd, thanks. Um, yeah, this has been uh, something uh, I had a young lady tell me one time that God told her I was supposed to marry her, and I told her he hadn't told me. So um, <laughs> it's used in two ways, Todd, and as you would well know. Sometimes it's just careless. And what the person is saying is, I think it's God's will that I do A, B, or C. Now, if they're a good friend, we want to help them understand that that's not the best way to say that. And then we never have, we, we can never know outside of an expli- or a statement of Scripture infallibly God's will. And so we humbly say, you know, I think it's God's will that I do this. I'm prayerfully going to pursue this course of action. Now, the other type, and it can be different manifestations of it, a person in Scripture takes a Scripture and believes that the Spirit gave them a message out of Scripture, uh, have nothing to do with its context or its original intent. A humorous story, a a man was trying to make a decision in a very difficult time, do something, so he opened his Bible, he put his pen down, and um, fell in the verse, and Judas went out and hung himself. Well, that wasn't very helpful, so he closed it and opened it again, and he read, and whatsoever you do, do quickly. No, second verse he read was, go, go ye and do likewise. He closed the Bible, opened it a third time, whatsoever you do, do quickly. Now, that's a humorous illustration of this whole use of Scripture in that way. The Bible must be taken in its context and its original intent. We don't jerk words out of Scripture as a message to us from the Holy Spirit. Then there are those that simply have impressions uh, or whatever, and they think that these are from God. So, depending on the level of friendship... It's how you're going to respond to the person. If it's a good friend, you want to take time and, and well, I always want to start by saying, what do you mean? So we don't talk past each other. What do you mean? Do you think this is God's will? Or do you have a more infallible message from God? Hmm. And right there, most people, particularly if they're sound biblical Christians, will be easily corrected, and, and they'll see, yeah, I, I just mean that I think this is God's will. And you just help them say, you know, that really is the, the, the best way to express that. If they say the other, then uh, the scriptures you want to take them to are the scriptures that teach the absolute sufficiency of the word of God. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2, you should not add to or take away from uh, the word of God. Uh, Proverbs 30 I think it's uh, verse 6 that I want in uh, Proverbs 30. Just a second, Todd. I'm sorry. Remember, silence is golden. Except on the radio. Grandchildren all day. All right. (laughs) Proverbs 30, 
verse 6, do not add to his words, or we'll take 5 and 6, every word of God is tested. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will prove you, and you will be proved a liar. Or Isaiah uh, chapter 8, again, dealing with uh, false messages uh, from God. Uh, and, and Isaiah, or God says through Isaiah, it's to the word and to uh, the testimony. Verse 20, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. Or in Mark 7, as Jesus gives the traditions of the Pharisees, adding to the word of God, he shows something very frightening there. In the first place, uh, they make of no effect, and then it's that they nullify. That the people who keep holding to either charismatic revelations or human traditions, at the end of the day, have uh, destroyed, in terms of any piety, the Word of God. Hope that helps, Todd. Yes, it's a good it's a good question, and it's one that we, as has been indicated, we face often. Um, and it's important to handle it carefully, as Dr. Piper has mentioned. Our next question comes in from Jonathan. He writes in from Florida, and it's a question on the Sabbath day. And he asks, or states, and then asks, I have two young boys, ages three and five, and keeping them engaged in spiritual activities on the Lord's Day can be a challenge. Uh, first, what Lord's Day activities would you recommend for parents with young children? And second, do you have any recommendations for well-written, spiritually edifying children's literature? Thank you, and may the Lord continue to bless your ministry. Okay, Todd. Jonathan. Uh, I appreciate the question. I have been greatly disturbed in the last few months as I've observed families that I know share Sabbath convictions, and yet it's kind of at the point with, with their children, uh, there's not a lot of constructive uh, work any longer. They just kind of go away, or they might have to play in their own yard or something, but uh, I think we really are, are losing uh, proper Sabbath keeping for our little ones, particularly in that younger age of three and five. In my book on the Lord's Day, uh, I have a whole chapter on things to do with children uh, on the Lord's Day. And I would encourage you to uh, well, get the book, but uh, also the chapter. And I just did a pamphlet book uh, Reformation Heritage books are doing these remarkable little uh, 30-something page uh, pamphlets on important topics. And I did one the first of the year, Is the Lord's Day for You? And I deal some with children in there as well. We've got to be constructive. We've got to realize that they, they run at 100 miles an hour all week. You can't put them on five miles an hour on Sunday. They will hate the day. So we have to be creative, and that means that some of the activities we do are going to need to be activities for the release of energy. Uh, occasionally, uh, when I was with that age, we'd get in the floor and wrestle. We often would go for walks, and on the walks, we would talk. We'd either review catechism, or we would uh, play a game. I, I got this from Dick DeWitt. We'd, everybody would keep pointing out things that God made. We lived in Philadelphia when they were that age, and the neighborhood would be really noisy, so we would come, occasionally we'd go to the park for a picnic, and then we would review catechism, go for a walk. So there's things that creatively we can do to help them uh, get rid of, of energy. We don't have to just let them go and play. Uh, it's just for ourselves, those things that we do as deeds of necessity and mercy 
ought to be as much as possible things that will contribute to the purpose of the day. Now, there is a great deal today of children's literature. Rather than try to give you titles, I'll send you to two publishers. One is Christian Focus Publications. They have led the way. Mm. And they that's really how they started. And just go on, on the website, Christian Focus Publications, and they have children's literature excellent, right on up through the various ages. And then, again, Reformation Heritage Books has a lot of good uh, children's uh, material. Uh, also, videos. So you uh, you can get good videos now. So in terms of looking at the day, uh, in the first place, they need to start learning to do a few chores so that mom has relief uh, uh, in the kitchen. Uh, it's a good day for hospitality and uh, extended family worship then um, around the table because we often gets rushed during the week. Another uh, energy buster is uh, acting out a Bible story. So we kept a, a that we still have a lot of pretend clothes now for grandchildren and visitors, and uh, so they can uh, get together. Say if you've got a family over and you've had devotions, it's all right, children, go prepare a skit on Daniel and the lion's den. Hmm. And so they have to think about the story, and then they'll uh, come back, or you tell them the story, and they'll go get their clothes, and they'll come back and, and act that out. Uh, it's good to read to our children all the time, but particularly on the Lord's Day when they can't read for themselves. It's, it's a very good family practice. It's also good for older children to read to younger children. They're serving the family. And then as children get older, they can start reading for themselves and build that family library. So, yes, get the books and then build a family library that's age-appropriate. So there's a growing older and older. They're they're loving reading and loving reading on the Lord's Day. Another very useful thing, and again, it's an energy buster, is to uh, take them periodically to visit a shut-in in in the church or go to a nursing home. Our our society has so segregated the elderly and the ill from the young uh, Mm. that our children are just kind of in a cocoon. And so it's really good for them to go. It's great for the elderly have children to come and maybe sing a couple of hymns for them. So those are things that you can do, and it will make a day a delight for your children. Now, for parents, when we have little children, we're going to have less of the Sabbath for ourselves. Mm-hmm. We're investing in our children. Of course, uh, some physical rest is good for the children even if they don't sleep, just have them get down with their book or whatever. So uh, those are some ideas. Uh, God bless you, and please don't give in to the trend that I'm seeing of just, well, we don't do this and this, but, yeah, you can go outside and do what you want to do. Yep, great question. And and just to um, let let you know, the listeners, that the, the chapter in Dr. Piper's book that he's referencing is Chapter 12. So if you do have the book, you can just flip to it, Chapter 12, and read uh, more extensively uh, on this particular issue. Um, but but do get the book if you have not as well. I'd, I'd also recommend Dr. McGraw's book. He's a professor at the seminary, um, The Day of Worship. It's also yes. outstanding treatment of the Lord's Day. Um, and so they're both excellent. And he's got some very good stuff on children as well. 
He does. And so I would encourage you to get both of those. And I'll make reference to this on the show notes uh, portion of the uh, confessingourhope.com website as well. So uh, look for that there in addition to what Dr. Pleipa has mentioned. Our next question comes in from Joel. He writes in from Alabama, right? Dr. Pleipa, Alabama. Alabama. Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Two and a half weeks. Yeah, boy. (laughs) Here we go again. Anyway, he writes in on the question of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, taking communion, the proper means of taking communion. He says, thank you so much for your helping us increase our faith by showing examples of how to put it into practice. His question is regarding the proper administration and partaking of the Lord's Supper. In most Reformed churches I've attended, after a time of instruction, meditation, and prayer, the bread is distributed and then everyone partakes of it together. Similarly, the wine is also distributed and everyone, again, partakes together. However, there was one um, church that, uh, he had, uh, that I've attended where the congregation eats the bread as soon as they receive it, but then waits until everyone has been served to partake of the wine. To me, this, at first glance, goes against what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 21. I asked an elder at the church about that practice, and he mentioned that by eating the bread on your own was a time to commune with God, and the wine was a time to commune with the other believers. What is your take on this, and what's the best means of glorifying God through through the Lord's Supper? Interesting question. Very useful question. Yes. Uh... There are a number of ways historically that people of God have taken of, of the Lord's uh, Supper, Joel. The first one is coming forward. This is what Calvin uh, practiced in Geneva, so the communicants would come forward, uh, receive the bread, the wine from a common cup, uh, partake, and go back to their seat. Um, in the Dutch churches, and some of the Scottish churches, because the practice of the Savior was at a table, they actually have table communion. So they set up tables in small churches. One table is fine. As the church grows, they have a large table, and they'll have to have multiple sittings. And so a group will sit together at the table. They'll hear a meditation, and then the bread and the cup passed around the table. They might wait and all take together. They might just take it as they uh, receive it. And then I think it was Zwingli that developed the distribution of the elements to the people in the pew. Uh, early on, uh, at least in my experience, for when it's distributed to the pew, which is what you are referring to, uh, people ate and drank as they received uh, the element. Then as some churches wanted to express the communion aspect of of coming to uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, custom has developed in a lot of our Reformed churches of holding the elements and then partaking together. And I would say that's the, the number one way that I see it done today. When I and preaching at various churches, I simply ask the elders uh, what they do and then uh, do it that way. Because I don't think that there is a biblical requirement. Now, it's interesting that you experienced uh, um, the bread taken as you received it and the wine held. I was at a church in South Africa last month, and it was just the opposite. It was the first time for me 
that we all held the bread and ate it together because this is the body uh, and we are one body. And then uh, as the cups were distributed, uh, you drank as soon as uh, you received the cup because that's the confession of uh, your confession that your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. I don't think any way is uh, more biblical than the others. I don't think that First Corinthians eleven twenty one uh, require us. Paul there is just dealing with um, an mm-hmm. disorderly approach to the table where people are treating it like a, a buffet. So um, my preference, which I can't get anybody to do it, but would be to come forward and have a common cup uh, and uh, and the bread. But I'm happy that all the churches I've served. People were served in the pew. Eventually, the practice developed, holding it and partaking together. Uh, the church that we attend now—that's what what they do, and I think it works works very well. Bill, I think we ought to go ahead and add the other communion question here while we're on the subject. Okay, let me. Uh, it, it's from the same um, person, uh, same listener, uh, and he asks. Um, he says, one question I've had for a while is the use of grape juice versus wine in the Lord's Supper. Is there a biblical mandate one way or the other, or is there a degree of Christian liberty that's permitted in this matter? Most places serve a mixed tray, which I appreciate. One church I was in was in, the pastor made it known before the elements were served that he would prefer to see the grape juice untouched. I was a little uncomfortable with him, in a way, pressuring the congregation to only partake of the wine. On the other side, one church didn't serve wine in order to not tempt any recovering alcoholics who might be in the church. In the NIV readings of the Lord's Supper, it always refers to, refers to it as the fruit of the vine. Technically, both grape juice and wine fall into this category, although I'm sure wine is what was used based on a variety of reasons. But since fruit of the vine was used in the text, I've never had a problem with partaking of grape juice instead. What are your thoughts? Okay, very good, Joel. The... Where to start? Um, trying to look at the question. The, let's get. We'll start with the bottom, and that is yes. The the Bible, I think, the institution of the Lord's Supper is wine. I, New American Standard translates that the same way. I think that's probably the best translation. Uh, fruit of the vine. In Christ's day, fruit of the vine would have been fermented wine, whether it was new wine or old wine. It still uh, was fermented because that's what wine is designed to do. It was later the grape juice uh, process was invented uh, to keep the grape from uh, fermenting. And you are right. uh, The Passover would have had wine. And it's clear that passage we just read in 1 Corinthians 11 that it's wine because they were getting drunk. Can't get drunk on grape juice. So the Lord instituted wine. The early church used wine. Wine has a theological basis, at least a couple of things. One is our Savior drank the cup, the wine cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. Mm -hmm. And the wine that has a bit of a burn to it is a reminder to us. Uh, One of the things we're we're missing out on, Joel, is is that the sacraments are an appeal to our senses, not to our minds primarily. And so the burning of, of the wine is a reminder to your whole person that Christ drank the wrath of God. And then Psalm 104 says, wine to give to God to make glad the heart of man. And this is a celebration. The Lord's Supper is not just a time uh, 
of humiliation and mourning is a time of celebration. And so the wine that we drink does make us glad in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I believe that wine was instituted. I believe that there are reasons for wine. Now, the problem, the reasons for not using wine are twofold. One is fundamentalism that uh, says that, well, in our day, it's just to be tempting people and we shouldn't be drinking any kind of alcoholic beverages. Or, as you mentioned, it going a step further, we've got alcoholics in the church and this could be a temptation uh, to them. See, both those things are wrong, Joel. In the first place, it's, again, as we said in a previous question, denies the sufficiency of Scripture. Christ instituted wine. Christ is omniscient. Christ knew what every culture would face in terms of problems and temptations. Um, Wine is good, and there's no sin in using wine, and there's no temptation in wine. The problem is not wine, it's in the human heart. And that leads to the second Mm. issue of recovering alcoholics. That's the medical model. Alcoholism isn't a disease like blood pressure. It can become an addiction. Um, abused, but addictions can be overcome. And I know ex-drunks, I prefer to call them drunks than alcoholics, who now use alcohol in moderation. I know others who don't want to ever tempt themselves, and so they don't, except at the Lord's Supper. Christ is not going to, God, we'll be reading James, God does not tempt us. So God's not going to tempt us by taking the Holy Sacrament uh, with wine. Now, the custom uh, in most places because of people's uh, consciences is uh, to have a mixed tray with a few cups of grape juice in the middle. I got fooled in one church. They had put the grape juice on the outside in the bulletin, <laughs> but it wasn't. The, they didn't say it up front, and I missed it. And I was, I was shocked at that particular church having grape juice. Anyway, um, a mixed tray, I think in our culture and with tender consciences, a mixed tray is good. I'm a bit similar, though, to the pastor you mentioned. What I say is we've put grape juice here for you if in conscience you cannot use wine. So I don't want to violate their conscience. But we encourage you to use the wine which has been appointed by our Savior. Mm -hmm. I have heard, I don't know if I read or heard, that uh, Benjamin Warfield would never take the Lord's Supper if it was only grape juice. Now, mm. I think that's going too far, and I think your insight is correct. Grapes are the fruit of the vine. And so uh, I don't think we are violating uh, seriously the nature of the Lord's Supper. We just are depriving our senses of the full force of what Christ is communicating there. One more note of humor. Uh, we, for nine years, were in a church after I was teaching here in Greenville, that uh, only had grape juice. And my wife, who has uh, kind of a far side sense of humor, said, why don't we ask them to put a few cups of wine in the middle for those who in good conscience can't use grape juice. (laughs) (laughs) So the mixed tray can go either direction. Yeah. Yeah, that reminds me of a, 
situation that I, as an elder, experienced, and, and the argument was, you know, the conscience issue for those who have a problem with alcohol. And of course, I turned it over, kind of like what your wife said, and said, "Well, that's fine. I'm sensitive to that pastorally, but but what about those who, in good conscience, just cannot take grape juice on the Lord's Supper? They believe it should be wine. What about their conscience?" Right. And so, the mixed trade does help, and I and I think you've wisely explained that, and and. Um, and uh, it, it does alleviate those issues uh, for everyone, really. And um, But I think you're right. I think it does. I, I'm so glad you made reference to the Psalm 104 passage. I was just talking with my wife the other day about this, and she was like, why does it have to be wine? And I said, the wine, of the, you know, the wine makes the heart glad. I think about what you're doing at the Lord's Supper. This is a joyous occasion. We're celebrating what Christ has done for us. And in, in, in Psalm 104, we have this reference, and she's like, you know, I never thought of it that way before. So it is really a great pointer and, and engages our senses. As you as as you have said, uh, but thank you, Joel, for both questions. They they were very um, well thought out. And, yeah, they uh, both well were his, and that's one reason I want to put them together. Yeah. So now we go backwards now, one to the anonymous yeah, I got question. It. Yep. And it, Dr. Pop, just a programming note. Number one, I did fix the live problem, so we are both live now. Uh, we have been for quite a while. Um, and second of all, do you want to go to ten thirty since that's when we started? Yes. Okay. Outstanding. All right. Next question comes in anonymous. Writes in that uh, she. Thanks us for the podcast. It's very stimulating to her walk with the Lord. But she says, I sometimes hear unbelievers cuss and use God's name in vain. When that happens, I cringe and mad and become sad. I feel even more disgusted, more angry, and more grieved when they throw in the uh, well, the F-bomb uh, word in their profanity. Uh, I don't mean anything by it, they say, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? Don't they know they deeply hurt those who love God? Why don't they use the name of their spouse, child, or best friend? Do they or Hollywood or recording artists or the culture's trendsetters dare curse with the name of Allah or Muhammad? Uh, what goes through your mind when you hear such expressions? What is the right response? Do you say nothing? After all, the quiet Christian says to himself, the unbeliever is simply acting like an unbeliever. They first need a new heart, Ezekiel 36. Or do you confront them? The Heidelberg Catechism on the Third Commandment, Lord's Day 99, forbids the Christian to be a silent bystander, lest we share in such horrible sins. What would you say to the unbeliever? Great question. Very sensitive question. Yes. And in the first place, I think it's very good that you've not become desensitized uh, and that uh, you do cringe, mad, sad, disgusted, uh, angry um, when you hear people taking God's name in vain. Uh, it should bother us, and if it doesn't, we need to ask the Lord to uh, make our hearts uh, sensitive. It's a very serious commandment. Um, it drives us to Christ uh, if we really understand, and it's co- a comprehensive commandment as well. So, yes, uh, let's not let ourselves get desensitized, and in the same way, uh, in terms of movies, uh, it's uh, it ought to be one of those standards that we use. I mean, if it's if it happens once or twice in a movie, but there's a movie I really like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? It's a tremendous piece of of uh, satire, and the music's fantastic. But I only saw it one time because it's full of taking God's name in vain, and I. I remember hearing there was a sanitized version of it, but I never got it. There used to be a, a thing you could get on your television that will actually bleep, bleep out uh, any words that you put in there. I don't know if they still make that uh, or not. That would be a, a good thing to look into. So that's kind of the practical 
background. So yes, when I hear those things, uh, they do bother me, and I'm glad, and I actually have become more sensitized, I think, in the last few years. As to response, I think there is where wisdom is uh, is, is very uh, comes to play in a very important way. It depends on context. It depends on your relationship to the person. It depends on uh, is it in private or public. So we have to take each case as it is. If it's someone that we know fairly well and we can speak to them uh, in private, in a pod, he said, you know, you probably haven't thought about this, but, you know, that's a wrong use of God's name. And even if you don't think so, it really does offend me. And I would just appreciate it if you didn't do that. And also for your own sake. Uh, sometimes if you don't know the person, you can, uh, then you're going to pray for them. Uh, but, you just have to take each case as it is, and even the flow of of the conversation. You know, I just wish you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, wouldn't say that or something like that. So, and and you're right. I think it's in our day now we can point out the fact. You know, it's really interesting um, how you just use God's name. But you know, if if a person did that today uh, with Allah or Muhammad, their life mm-hmm. could be in danger. Uh, it seems the Muslims have a, a higher view of their false god than, than we have of, of the true God. So there's other ways now in our culture that we can get at this. So pray, always pray before you speak, and then look for opportunities. It can become an opportunity then to speak to a person. You, you know, it can come more possibly. You know, you just mentioned um, God. What do you think about God? And actually, don't even talk about their taking God's name in vain, but use it as, all right, you know, you just talked about God damning somebody. Do you believe in hell? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this, I think we could get really creative and turn the conversations even to uh, witnessing opportunities. Yep. Well, I know you... <laughs> and I had a coach. I was playing tennis one time, doubles, with the uh, tennis coach when I was in college and uh, made a terrible shot and he uh, took God's name in vain and I said I said coach I know that I I just really am bad and and messed up but please don't take God's name in vain he later was converted too so not because of that but well I I know you've you even shared uh, mentioning the the opportunity for evangelism or, or giving um sharing the gospel with people in these circumstances. You've mentioned even um, times where you've said, if the Lord wills, or if the Lord is willing, I'll... Yeah, so I will so often so put that into a conversation with people. And people will ask you, uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Or they'll start saying it when they're around me. <laughs> right. I have right. a Roman Catholic friend at the gym. Uh, we're not the same gym any longer, but he he started occasionally saying it. Yep. Well, I, I've experienced this, uh, similar situations w- with people. I, I True story, I was playing golf 13 holes into the horrific game of golf that day, and two men I didn't know were playing with my father and I, and father and me, my father and I, anyway. Father, so, no, no, you correct yourself. Don't uncorrect father yourself. And, father and me, anyway, he, um, the man on the 13th tee asked me, he says, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a seminary student. 
and and he just looked at me with this horrific look on his face, and he says, oh, I'm so sorry. And I said, why are you sorry? He says, we've been cursing and swearing all the way around this golf course. And it's just, it's so funny how when, when they they come face to face with a Christian, and all of a sudden they, they that they'll try to clean up their language because they don't want to, it, most people don't want to be offensive, but it does happen. And it's just interesting to see how people react when you just say that. Uh, well, and that doesn't just, bother me. You know, I'm, I'm thankful for the uh, influence of a Christian in society. And if they're going to uh, speak more nicely because I'm a minister or they know I'm a Christian, great. Yep. Absolutely. I do have a follow-up question, Dr. Piper, from a live listener. It's not related to this question, but it was one that was uh, asked earlier regarding preaching. If you want right. to take this, it's a, it's a very simple question. But a listener writes in, wants to know if, if it would be possible if one of the pastor's institutes at the seminary would actually address um, in uh, detail uh, preaching sermons that are uh, particularly difficult topic sermons, like, um, for instance, um, cases of tragedy, um, national disaster, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, and and, I, and I, 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 I resonate a little bit with this question. It, it, there's times when you have to preach a very difficult sermon in, in the face of the tragedy in the congregation or in the nation, in the community. Um, would that be well, a, I don't think we could, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm capable of doing a whole conference on it, but let me just give this fruit. And I'm glad that the question was asked. And again, we do touch on this in preaching because uh, we teach that the foundation of preaching should be consecutive expository preaching. But we tell our students anytime that there is a local or national or international emergency, something that really has everybody's attention, mm. very wise to address the issue uh, in a sermon in that next uh, Sunday. So uh, I know the first time I did that was uh, in California, and California always has wildfires. This is a particularly horrendous wildfire, and so I, I preached at that time from Luke chapter 13, uh, first uh, nine verses. No, that's not the, uh, let's see. Tower Shalom? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's right. It's the first, but not nine. It's the first five verses. Um, and lay out, you know, I tried it still in uh, preach uh, textual, our sermon on God's sovereignty, God's providence. And so I think it's just good uh, to address an issue, either in terms of Christ-wise counsel there. Have some textual sermons in mind. There's a time for everything from Ecclesiastes. That's God's time, not my time. There is, um, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's confession in uh, in Daniel. It's just lots of good verses. Mm-hmm. Uh, judgment begins in the household of God and Peter. And so uh, have in mind verses, but be sensitive. And also be sensitive in the uh, pastoral prayer. I I had a lady tell me one time in Houston, she says, I always know if something serious has happened this week because you're going to pray about it. Interesting. So, I mean, that's a, it's a bit astonishing that you could have 30 people killed and you don't on Saturday and you're not hearing uh, pastors praying for those families and such. I, I, I think we ought mm-hmm. not to have a lot of, of delving too deeply personal. I don't mention names in the morning prayer unless it's an emergency 
uh, in terms of people in the congregation or others. But when there's a, something like that, then I think it should be reflected in our pastoral prayer that we're praying for those that are involved. And I think that's uh, it's useful. Yes. Well, thank you for the follow-up. I, I, I'm reminded of when the Supreme Court voted to legalize homosexual marriage, and it was a, I think it was a Friday, and I was preaching on Sunday, and it was going to be in everybody's minds, and people are going to be concerned and upset. And so I chucked, as it were, what I was going to do and preach Psalm 11 um, because I knew everybody was going to be thinking about it, and I wanted them to realize, hey, look, the Supreme Court's not in charge of this universe, and Psalm 11 just talks about this and so yeah it's you have to be sensitive to those times it's not always easy especially if it happens on a saturday night um <laughs> yeah. it could be a challenge but it but i think your advice is, is well taken and well said um have some sermons in that vein uh done that you don't have to redo the whole thing on a saturday night but you can pull it out and go over it and tweak it and and then visit that in the in the preaching on Sunday morning. But good follow-up question and do appreciate um, that. Our next question I think will probably be the last one for the day um, uh, unless I get overruled but um, uh, Cindy writes in from New Mexico and, and she asks the question on the subject of weariness and she says that Paul admonishes us not to grow weary in doing good. What do we do when we find that we have grown weary? Is there a remedy? Well, Cindy and her husband are very good friends of mine, and uh, they've been in their one church for decades, and it's not an easy place to minister, and I'm surely sympathetic to uh, growing weary um, in in ministry and in service. I think that uh, the greatest remedy for growing weary and well-doing is to meditate on the glory of Christ. Mm. and to meditate on his humiliation and exaltation, to meditate on Hebrews 12, which is the encouragement to us then to look to Christ, to look to those witnesses, but then to look to Christ, uh, who, for the joy uh, set before him, endured the cross, despising uh, the shame. And so we we look to Christ, uh, and we find refreshment uh, and meditate on him. We all should meditate more, I think, on uh, the glory of Christ. And then I found Second Corinthians 4 to be helpful, Cindy. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God. Now, I know that mm-hmm. your husband uh, is faithful and does not walk in craftiness and the the Word of God. So the encouragement is that we have received mercy. That, uh, yes, the mercy of our salvation, but it's an act of mercy that God put us in the ministry as well as in our callings as Christians. And thus, we look to him for the grace and mercy who's promised us that his grace is sufficient for all of our needs. And then remind ourselves, man, what a privilege it is to serve the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, then go to maybe Second Timothy 4, uh, where Paul uh, addresses his own ministry after the exhortation about preaching. And we see what he is thinking about 
I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so we remind ourselves of, of yes, uh, God is going to uh, indeed there's going to be a reckoning, and He's going to uh, He's going to own that which, by His grace, He has allowed us to do. And then just one other place in Peter, after He charges the elders in chapter five, um, He says, "When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory." So He knows. And he takes in all things into account, so you can refresh yourself, Cindy, with those things. Yeah, well said. And I do want to give a recommendation, too, um, from the Banner of Truth, which, which is uh, partnered with uh, Greenville Seminary and has been very helpful to us as a podcast. Um, one of the reasons we do this program and one of the benefits you get from it is great, great questions, great answers. Um, in addition, you get discounts to their... Uh, to their good books they have out. And they do have one out on this subject that Dr. Pipe was talking about, The Loveliness of Christ, uh, Extracts from the Letters of Samuel Rutherford. It's a little pocket edition book. Um, It is so refreshing to read uh, the things that Samuel Rutherford said just on the meditating on the work of the Savior and what he has done. So I'd recommend that book to you as well, The Letters, The Loveliness of Christ, extracts from the writings of Samuel Rutherford. Well, I think that's it for today, Dr. Piper. We're right at the hour um, at, of the end. Um, do you want to fill in the listeners as to what's happening at the seminary in the next little bit? Is okay, it, and then Bill, yours is only question. We missed this time, and we'll start off with it uh, okay. next month. Uh, we've got our schedule set for the fall, so you guys can go online and, and you want to listen live. The schedule is posted on the on the podcast site. I hope um, it is. Uh, pray for us. We've got a, a really neat class going on this week, taught by Dr. McGraw on um, reformed scholasticism and research. Uh, Thursday and Friday, our new students will be here for orientation. Uh, we're we're disappointed. Uh, this is probably the smallest room we've had since I've been here in eighteen nineteen years but we believe that the people are here that God is sending to us. Um, connection with that, we have a new student's dinner on Thursday night and convocation, which is the formal opening of the seminary Friday night. Saturday is our picnic. And then next Tuesday night, a week from tonight, uh, Dr. McGraw, who's just been promoted to full professor, is giving a lecture. If you're anywhere in the area, uh, plan on coming, and I'm going to actually talk to Bill's successor and see if we maybe can't even broadcasted on a webcast and then classes start Wednesday so we're off and running so pray for us as we start this uh, 30th academic year absolutely and in addition to that um, uh, if you are able to help the seminary um, please do so Um, much of what we do at the seminary is dependent upon your prayers and your faithful support of what Greenville Seminary is trying to do and believes and stands for uh, emphatically. Um, so you can go to the website, gpts.edu, and click the support link there and donate. Any amount is helpful. There's no such thing as a little gift. 
um, we take everything that you'll give. But do pray for us as well. Coming up on the program next week, Ken Golden will be on to talk about his little book. Uh, it's titled Presbytopia. Uh, if you're confused by that title, don't worry about it. I deal with that in the interview. It has already been done and recorded. But it's a very helpful book in introducing people to the Reformed faith, Presbyterianism in particular, and so uh, stay tuned for that next week. Following that, we'll be talking with David Randall. He wrote a book on, on, on the issue of the Scottish Church, and the title of it is A Sad Departure, and it's um, a very stirring book, and so look forward to that interview as well. And, of course, uh, Faith and Practice will be released every month um, as usual. And so continue to write in to the program. Send your questions in. Uh, They've all been very good and very thoughtful and helpful. Uh, And I've even taken notes at some of the answers. So um, uh, utilize that resource and and trust that God will help uh, with Dr. Pipe's answers for the Christian community at large, not just for the individual. And so until next week when we sit down with Ken Golden and talk about his little book on Reformed Faith and Presbyterianism, we do thank you uh, for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.